Walking with Jesus, what an incredible joy we have in this life. I want to invite you to open your Bibles to Luke chapter 20. Luke chapter 20 is where we'll be. And this morning, we're going to be considering why we must be Scripture-fed. You heard Noah just a minute ago say that for us to be a biblically thriving church, we must be five things. We must be Scripture-fed, servant-led, Spirit-filled, Christ-centered, and Father-glorifying. And we see this throughout the entirety of God's Word. And so today, we're going to look specifically, understanding a little bit maybe more deeply from Luke chapter 20, why we must be Scripture-fed. As you find in your place in God's Word to Luke chapter 20, I want to share a few things that I am just very excited about and, and what I see God doing in this body and in our city through you. And one of those things, you know, it's today, uh, Pastor David Crosby, where are you? Let's see, there he is. Pastor David, thank you for coming back this, this weekend in order to to lead uh, the funeral services for Chris Owens, a, a longtime member. I'm so thankful that our pastor emeritus is still pastoring and still pastoring us. And so, so thank you for making the trip back and for administering the gospel this afternoon to the family as they grieve. Um, I'm thankful I, I shared with a class this morning because two weeks ago I got a call from Joyce Harrington. Now, some of you know who that is, but Miss Joyce is a 95-year-old member of this church um, who right now has cancer and, and she made a move because she had been living here, but she moved to be closer to her daughter and son-in-law, um, Chuck and Rhonda Kelly, um, to be over in Fairhope, Alabama. And she called and she said, Chad, I, I want you to know how grateful I, I am to have been a member all these years of First Baptist New Orleans. She said, but I have communicated through the years to every young woman that I've had the chance to disciple and to, to do Bible study with the importance of the local church and so now that I've moved to Fairhope, I must join a local church where I am. Let that be a, a testimony um, to you. In the same way, Sim and Denise Diana, some of our members that have been engaged so much in our Compassion Ministries, today is their last Sunday, but four months ago, they emailed me and said, Chad, will you begin praying with us and helping us to find a local church so that as soon as we move to Colorado, we can be part of a faith family there? It, that is important for us to, to allow that influence to, to hit us because you may only be in New Orleans for a season. And in a day and age when so many have settled for watching church and, and that being it. Now, obviously, we're so thankful for media during times of pandemic and all of those sort of things, but don't allow yourself to settle into watching church. That's not what the church was intended to be. Uh, the, the church is the gathered body of Christ when we come together. And so I love that Miss Joyce Harrington, uh, at the very, you know, toward the end of her life, 95 year old, is joining a local church. And Sim and Denise, as they make this move to another state, they're saying we want to be part of a local church in order to grow, in order to serve, in order to worship. I'm excited because since we met last week, Believers from this church went into Rivard Juvenile Detention Center and were able to share the gospel with, with young men who are hungry for the Word of God, to be able to do Bible study in that context. I'm thankful that since we met last week, our students, um, our, our children did a bike-a-thon where they raised money in order to help with the the humanitarian crisis that's going on right now because of the conflict between the Ukraine and Russia and all of the refugees that have fled into countries like Poland. Um, I'm so, I was so encouraged by one of our students that said that they were raising support in order to pay fully for the mission trip to Waco, Texas for our preteens so that all of the money, the rest of the money raised could go to the humanitarian crisis to be able to do sin relief 
um, and to help administer the gospel to refugees. I'm excited about the serve day that was yesterday and so many families and individuals involved in that and going out in our city and administering the gospel. And I'm excited that women engaged again this week in inward ministry, going down to Bourbon Street to be able to minister the gospel in the adult entertainment industry and to begin going in in the name of Jesus in these compassion ministries. So I share all that to tell you, God is at work. He is at work in our city. He is at work in you and through you. And it is a wonderful time to join in what God is doing in this city. He is at work. We want to join him in what he is doing in this city. And so get engaged. Be engaged. Uh, That's the fullness of the life that we have to be able to walk with Jesus. Because as we look at even the title of this, where did Jesus walk? He didn't just walk into churches. That was part of where he went. He went to the synagogue. He's found teaching there. But that wasn't the only place he went. He went into the hard places. He, he went to the places where most people would avoid in order to bring the good news of the gospel, the kingdom of God, the love of God. And we see lives being changed over and over again in the gospel of Luke. And so as we turn to the gospel of Luke this morning, I'm only going to read as we all stand for the reading of God's word in this moment, the first eight verses. I'm only going to read the first eight verses and allow it to be somewhat of a, of a diving board into the rest of the chapter that we're going to look through today. And so hear the word of the Lord. One day as he, Jesus, was teaching the people in the temple and proclaiming the good news, the chief priests and the scribes with the elders came and said to him, tell us, by what authority are you doing these things? Who is it that gave you this authority? Jesus answered them, I will also ask you a question. Tell me, was the baptism of John from heaven or of human origin? They discussed it among themselves and If we say from heaven, he'll say, well, why do you believe him? If we say of human origin, well, all the people will stone us because they're convinced that John was a prophet. So they answered that they did not know its origin. And Jesus said to them, well, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. Father, pray this morning that the authority of Jesus will come to be everything to us, that his His place alone as King of kings and Lord of lords will impact us in every sphere, that it will be our foundation in this life. It will be the authority to which we submit. It will be the covering that we wear as we go in this city, that we are those who have surrendered our lives to the King. And we walk with him. So may you be glorified. May your spirit be at work through the reading and preaching of your word today. We pray all of these things hungry in Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated. I love the brilliance of Jesus in this passage where he understands, he sees clearly that they're setting a trap for him in this question. They're baiting him. They're they're trying to to get him to say the wrong thing so that then, kind of like lawyers, they can just kind of seize on the words that he said that really distract from the real issue that's going on here. But Jesus sees through that, and he asks them a question, and it pertains to John the Baptist. Now, you remember, there's, there's a lot of press in Luke 
about John the Baptist and about his birth and the significance of it and all of these things. And we've already settled in previous sermons that John the Baptist was the greatest Old Testament prophet. And you say, but Chad, he's in the New Testament. The, 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 the time of the Old Testament prophets went all the way up to Jesus. And so John the Baptist, really, you should look at him like you look at Isaiah and at Jeremiah and Ezekiel as a major prophet bringing the word of God. Jesus himself saying, no one greater has been born among women than John the Baptist. And John the Baptist comes bringing the word of God, bringing this message of repentance from sin and faith in God. And we see him baptizing people as they are being, as they are turning from their sin and they're turning in faith back to God. And that is preparing the way of the Lord, the Lord Jesus to come. And so we look at this and we understand that his message was one of heavenly origin. We see it in the pages of Luke because we understand that just as Jesus was foretold by the angel Gabriel, so was John the Baptist foretold by the angel Gabriel to his parents. And so we understand that there's significance here tied up that if, and this is what I think Luke is trying to communicate and that Jesus is trying to communicate, if John the Baptist in his message was of heavenly origin and not just of humanly origin, then why didn't you believe it? But if the prophet pointing to the Messiah was of heavenly origin, how much more so the Messiah? How much more so his authority? You know, because they're asking him not, how did John the Baptist have authority? They're asking Jesus, by what authority do you do this? And so Jesus is linking himself and John the Baptist in the moment so that what was true of John the Baptist is also being implied about Jesus himself. And so when he asked the question and he says, well, tell me about what authority was John's message? Was it from heaven or from just you know, humankind? Was it from the earth? The way he says it is of human origin. And the answer to the question is of heavenly origin. Jesus implying, so is mine. I am one sent from heaven. My message is a heavenly message. My authority comes from God itself. He's confronting them with these things. And these are things that they are wanting to reject. They're not wanting to receive. But Jesus is establishing his authority as a heavenly God-given, you might even say godly authority. This is God's authority over us revealed in a person, Jesus Christ, in the words that he said and that he communicated. Well, Jesus isn't with us today. We don't have Jesus walking among us in the same way that he walked among the first century church where there was disciples following him. And literally, when we talk about walking with Jesus, they literally walked with Jesus. They could put their hand on him. They could see him with their eyes, all of these things. And so today, how do we understand the authority of Jesus? How do we grapple with his words and his teaching? Squarely in the word of God. We experience the authority of Jesus, that heavenly authority, not of human origin, that he is trying to establish with the religious leaders of his day saying, it's my word. It's a heavenly word that gives the authority. God speaking through me. And today we have those words recorded in his word. 
And what we'll see is, well, do we not need the Old Testament? What Jesus does in chapter 20 is he expounds the Old Testament, the word of God accepted by the people of God. He uses it as the basis of his teaching to them in this moment, in that day, in that authority remains over us today. So today, when you and I make the, the confession, Jesus is Lord, we are by nature saying something about where authority lies in our life. We're saying, I no longer have authority, but someone has authority over me. And who is that? Jesus is Lord. And so if Jesus is Lord, well then what does that actually mean? How does that meet us? What is the substance of that? Because many will say in the day of the Lord, Lord, Lord. And Jesus will say to them, based on his word from Matthew chapter seven, away from me, I never knew you. Now, I don't think there's anybody in this room that wants to get to that moment where they stand before the Lord and they say, Lord, Lord, I did a lot of things in your name. I went in the city and I fed the homeless. I went down to Bourbon Street. I went in the juvenile detention center. I was faithful in church attendance. I served, faced God in the children's ministry. And hear him say, I never knew you. In other words, my authority was never over you. You were doing some things for me in this life, but you had never come to the place where you surrendered your life to me. Jesus is Lord. This is the posture of surrender. This is what it means for Jesus' authority to be over us. And you say, Chad, I, I do want Jesus' authority over me. Then hear me, hear me. Then you must be scripture fed. You must be scripture fed. And I want you to see how Jesus, as we're gonna walk through this chapter, what he hinges each one of his teaching, each one of his corrections to the people of God, he is hinging it and basing it in the word of God. In other words, the better that they had a grip on the scriptures, the more easily God was gonna grip them with his authority and the authority of Christ. But the more loosely they held to the scriptures, the more loose that this had an impact in their life, Jesus's authority meant nothing to them. They will be those that one day will say, Lord, Lord, and him say, I never knew you. So when it comes down to it, if we're gonna really know the Lord and him know us, it's gonna take place in the context of his word. That's the tried and true path. That's the tried and true room that countless believers over the last 2,000 years have experienced a thriving relationship with Jesus Christ is in and through his word. So we must be scripture fed because we need Jesus's authority. We need Jesus's authority. You see, that's what he's establishing in verses one through eight is we need his authority over us. I'm gonna be using some language today that really I kind of pull from a prayer that's credited to St. Patrick, a prayer that calls for Christ to be everything to us. 
that identifies all of the spatial dynamics that we can kind of muster to understand above and below, before and behind, around, above, all of these things. We need Christ and his authority to be everything in our life, in every part of our life, and we see it here in this passage. So first of all, Jesus is establishing that we need his authority over us in verses one through eight. You see, when I read these words, I think it's easy sometimes to just kind of look at Jesus as opposed to the Pharisees, as opposed to the religious leaders of his day. It's just, he wanted nothing to do with them. He hated them. But that's not the gospel. That's not the gospel. The gospel is Jesus came in order to give his life as a ransom for many. And that included the religious of his day. We see it with Nicodemus. We see it with one who comes to him asking these questions. And so we, we should look and remember that their eyes of compassion are still in Christ. And while there may have been frustration because of the hardness of their heart, he still was bound in looking to the cross where he would go. That we will celebrate this Friday night here, Good Friday at 6.30 p.m., we will look and we will read through chapters 21 and 22 together this week, remembering exactly whether this is all pointing to, but Jesus is still interacting with them. He's wanting them to know that his authority is what needs to be over them, that they need to submit to his word. But look, it goes on. He then tells them a parable. And if you look back through the previous chapters in the Gospel of Luke, they are full of parables. In other words, Jesus is trying as an excellent teacher to impart his authority, his teaching, his rule and reign over them in ways that they can understand, in ways that they can grasp and remember, ways that they could easily get and then tell to someone else. And so here's another parable that he tells them. He says, now he began to tell the people this parable. A man planted a vineyard, leased it to tenant farmers, and went away for a long time. At harvest time, he sent a servant to the farmers so that they might give him some fruit from the vineyard. But the farmers beat him and sent him away empty-handed. Yet he sent another servant, and they beat that one too and treated him shamefully and sent him away empty-handed. And he sent yet a third, but they wounded this one too and threw him out. Then the owner of the vineyard said, what should I do? I will send my beloved son. Perhaps they will respect him. And when the tenant farmers saw him, they discussed it among themselves and said, this is the heir. Let's kill him so that the inheritance will be ours. So they threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. What then will the owner of the vineyard do to them? He will come and kill those farmers and give the vineyard to others. But when they heard this, they said, that must never happen. But he looked at them and he said, then what is the meaning of this scripture? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces, but on whomever it falls, it will shatter him. Then the scribes and the chief priests looked for a way to get their hands on him at that very hour because they knew that he had told this parable against them, but they feared the people. Notice that. They wouldn't give a direct answer in verses one through eight because they feared the people. Here, they didn't wanna do anything because they feared the people. When you fear people more than you fear God, you've got it all wrong. You've got it all wrong. The order of your life will constantly be timidity. 
There will be a weakness in your life when you fear man and what people think of you more than you are concerned with pleasing God. Paul says the same thing when he writes to the church at Thessalonica in 1 Thessalonians. He tells them, you receive this message as a message from God, not from men. And we proclaim this message to you, not because we're trying to please people, but because we're trying to please God. Because this message is from him and this parable is from him. And notice what Jesus does. He pushes them right back into God's word. He doesn't just tell a story in order to illustrate a truth that he's trying to get across. He's trying to illustrate something and push them toward a biblical conclusion that they've already got. Psalm 118, verse 22 is what he quotes. It's in a little bit darker, bolder font in my Bible, and perhaps it is in yours as well, where it says, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. The Lord has done it as it goes on, and it is great in our sight. This is the day that the Lord has made, and we will rejoice and be glad in it. That's that passage. That's that song that maybe even is familiar to you, but it stems from this biblical truth that people were going to reject Jesus as their foundation, and they were going to build on something else. But that very stone, that very rock that they rejected would become the cornerstone. And the understanding of a cornerstone is that it's the one that all of the rest of the structure builds from that it's that significant, it's the first one. It's the one that according to its angle and orientation, every other stone builds off of it. So, so in other words, God's about to build something new. God's about to build something new with the stone that the builders rejected. And that stone, that cornerstone is Jesus Christ. And so what we come to understand is that Jesus is communicating that his authority must be under us as a foundation. And you say, well, what does it mean to have Jesus as our authority under us to be our, our foundation? We must be scripture fed. You see, men and women that build their lives on God's word, they build in a way that will stand when the storms come. They're like those that built their house upon the rock. And when the wind and the waves came and blew, still standing. But those who build their lives on the fear of man, you say, well, what does that mean? I don't, I don't fear anybody. I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid of a fight. A lot of times it looks this way. We're concerned about what people think if we live maybe a different way than they live. Maybe we dress a different way than they dress. Maybe we spend our money a little different way than they spend their money. Maybe we spend time with people that they say shouldn't spend time with. Our lives can begin to look very different. I mean, we even see it in the New Testament with Peter, that when Jews came and Jews had the custom of not eating with Gentiles, that Peter, even though he had had this incredible vision in Acts chapter 10, even though the matter had been settled in Acts 15, he still is kind of withdrawing from the Gentiles and just eating with the Jews. And why is that? Because he's afraid of what people think. He's afraid to associate. He's afraid to do what's right in that moment because of the fear of man rather than the fear of God. But when we begin to build our life 
on the Word of God, understanding that Jesus has given us all of this Word, all of it pointing to Him. We're going to get to Luke 24 in two weeks where we're going to look where He walks in a resurrected body with the disciples on the road to Emmaus and begins to tell them from the whole Old Testament how all of these things were pointing to Him we begin to understand that this becomes a full foundation to point to Jesus Christ and a foundation that we can build our lives on. That's why it's so important that we consume God's word on a regular basis. That the the goal for us as a church is that we will be reading on an individual basis God's word at least four times a week. You say, well, Chad, why, why four? What's the, the significance of four? In the course of seven days, if you're reading God's word four times in a week, it's more than you're not. And more than that, on a survey of over 500,000 believers, the statistics are astounding for what happens in the life of a believer when they read God's word four or more times a week. Those brothers and sisters that read God's word more four or more times a week are 266% more likely to obey God's word in the realm of making disciples, sharing their faith with someone else. 266% more likely. And there is nothing more like Christ than you can do than to go and to proclaim him to others, to go and to share this good news. I mean, look at the testimony of his life. But when you and I don't build our life on God's word, when we don't read his word, then it is no wonder that our life is like one built off of a different cornerstone. You know, the cornerstone of some of our life might actually have the word Netflix on it or or Facebook or a, a certain news channel or a certain person. We can build our lives, frame it off of all kinds of things, but Jesus is calling us to build our lives on the foundation of his word. We must be scripture fed because we need Jesus' authority over us, verses one through eight. We need it under us as our foundation. But notice then it goes on. They watched closely and, and sent spies who pretended to be righteous so that they could catch him in what he said to hand him over to the governor's rule and authority. And they questioned him and they said, teacher, we know that you speak and teach correctly. And you don't show partiality, but teach truthfully the way of God. And then notice this question, is it lawful for us to pay taxes to Caesar or not? But detecting their craftiness, he said to them, show me a denarius. That's a coin of their day. Whose image and inscription does it have? Caesar's, they said. Well then, he told them, give to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. And they were not able to catch him in what he said in public and being amazed at his answer, they became silent. I mean, Jesus takes something like a coin and he uses it to usher them back into something far more significant. And that's this, Genesis chapter one. Genesis chapter one and chapter two in God's word that they would have had access to and should have known by heart, taught that we are created in the image of God. He created us, male and female, in his image. That's a foundational truth from God's word that 
Jesus is ushering them back into so that men and women, boys and girls, might rightly surrender their life made in the image of God to God. And he takes something like a, a quarter and says, well, who, whose face is on it? Caesar's? Whose inscription? Caesar's? Well, then give to Caesar what's Caesar's. I mean, talk about a radically different understanding of money. I don't know whose face is on your bills, but mine doesn't have the face of God. It doesn't have the face of Jesus. It has the, the face of presidents. And so give to the government what is the government's, but give your life to God because you were created in his image is what Jesus is saying. And if they had rightly understood the scriptures, the foundational passage from the book of Moses, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, if they had understood Genesis chapter one and two and how it was communicated that we are created in the image of God, that the question would have never had to have been uttered because they would have been giving themselves fully to God. Now in our day, right, we live in a time when we are also being baited with questions where people are, are gonna bait you with a question, maybe in the workplace or at school or, or maybe in, in, in kind of a social context with, with a question. It might be about sexual identity. Do you believe that it's okay to, to have a gender change? They're asking this question. They know where they stand. They just are trying to maybe catch you in your words. Questions like, do you believe that homosexuality is a sin? Trying to catch you in your words. They're trying to bait you into something so that then the moment you answer that question with any clarity, they can attack you. It's being someone who, who fears a certain type of person, a person who's narrow-minded, closed-minded, maybe even bigoted and hateful. They may even liken you to a previous day of being something like someone who oppressed mankind and held them down and hated them. All of these things, you're being baited into these kind of questions. We can learn from the example of Jesus in this passage about the wisdom of allowing God's word to be central in our life to where we maybe can begin to, to train ourselves based on the example of Jesus to go right back to Genesis 1 and 2 where rather than just answering the question directly, we just say, well, do, do you believe that we're created in the image of God? No, I do. And that, that defines everything about my understanding of humanity. You can ask, do you believe that when God created mankind that he made them male and female and it was good? It was very good that gender was a good gift from a good God in a world free from sin. So male and female are not constructs of mankind, but they're, they're a gift from God. Gender's a gift. God gifted it to us. He didn't make one less than the other. He made them both very good. Do you believe that? And they may look at you like you've got three heads, but at least they'll know that you're one who believes this, that somehow this is orienting your entire world, that this has somehow gotten into you. This has gotten into your thinking, that, th that this is in here and in here, 
and it's not resulting in hatred. It's not resulting in this rejection of everyone. In fact, it's, it's ushering in this compassion and this intelligence to your answers and this reasonableness to the way that you think. Brothers and sisters, that only happens when Jesus' authority is in us. And that authority only comes to reside in us and, and, and govern our words and our responses when this word is coming into us, when we are memorizing it and meditating on it and allowing it to become the fabric of our thought. This isn't just about playing Bible ping pong, not memorizing a few verses so that you can shut somebody down. That's not what we see Jesus doing. We see him engaging in highly and intellectual way in this point. I mean, notice what they said. The people, the very people that were trying to trap him, they became silent because they were amazed at his answers. They were amazed. They were like, I've never thought of that. Huh. They went away. You can just kind of see them thinking. I can almost visualize them at the dinner table later and being like, why are you so quiet tonight, honey? I still think about what Jesus said. I'm like, I just, I never thought of it that way. Brothers and sisters, we need to meaningfully, compassionately engage our culture. Meaningfully, compassionately with the word of God. To not say, well, I'm embarrassed by this. But to say, I, I'm, really, I'm really clinging to this. Is the way that humans flourish. And I see all things. I see mankind is a gift from God, and it's good. And that's why I labor the way I do to see people restored in relationships. <laughs> why, why I want you to know Christ. We need his authority in us to reside in us, to permeate us. But he goes on, some of the Sadducees who say there is no resurrection came up and questioned him. Now notice that, that's very important. Luke is giving you what you need to know so that you'll understand why this was significant. The Sadducees who say there is no resurrection. Now listen to their question. Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother has a wife and dies childless, his brother should take the wife and produce offspring for his brother. Now there were seven brothers. The first took a wife and died without children. Also the second and then third in the same way, all seven died and left no children. Finally, the woman died too. Now, in the resurrection, therefore, whose wife will the woman be? For all seven had married her. And Jesus told them, the children of this age marry and are given in marriage, but those who are counted worthy to take part in that age, talking about the age of the resurrection, and in the resurrection from the dead, neither marry nor are given in marriage. For they can no longer die because they are like angels and are children of God since they are children of the resurrection. Moses even indicated in the passage about the burning bush that the dead are raised where he calls the Lord the God of Abraham and the God of Jacob, I mean Isaac and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead but of the living because all are living to him. Some of the scribes answered, teacher, you've spoken well and they no longer dare to ask him anything. Here in this passage, what we see is that we need Jesus's authority before us, before us as hope. You see, the, the resurrection 
is what you and I, that's what our hope is hinged on. Notice that Jesus is using God's word again, quoting from Exodus here in this passage, where in verse 37, he says, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. Now, what's significant about this passage? Why is Jesus bringing this up? Jesus is establishing in this passage the present tense of these words. That God did not say, I was the God of Abraham, and I was the God of Isaac, and I was the God of Jacob. Because remember, when he's speaking these words is after the exodus of God's people, they're wandering in the wilderness, and God is speaking these words. I'm sorry, in this specific passage, he's quoting back is the passage before when, when Moses is hearing from the burning bush and he says, I am the God of Jacob. Now, Abraham's dead. Isaac is dead. Jacob is dead. So you would think I was the God. He says, I am the God. I am the God. These men, they believed in me. And so they live on forever with me. When we read in the New Testament about the great cloud of witnesses that are right now together, if you were to be cheering us on in the faith, Abraham is there, Isaac is there, Jacob is there, and so many others that we would say, well, they've died. They're dead. And Jesus is anchoring in God's word in the Old Testament this idea of resurrection to a passage that you and I never would. I don't know a single pastor who has ever preached from the burning bush passage on Resurrection Sunday that says, well, if you want to know about the resurrection, well, you have no further than a look than the burning bush. It's like, how does the burning bush equal the resurrection? Well, brothers and sisters, the reason you haven't heard that sermon is because that sermon that Jesus was preaching here was pointing to what would be the true fruit of the resurrection, the resurrection of Jesus Christ himself. That's why you don't look back at the Old Testament now to consider resurrection. You look at Jesus in the event of the resurrection. Because the burning bush, the statement of I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob was pointing to, Jesus says, the resurrection of himself. And if Jesus was resurrected as a first fruit, then guess what you and I, our hope is? Now, think carefully for just a second. Because if you and I are honest, what we would say today is my hope is that I go to heaven when I die. That's our hope. Now, just just for a second, I want to sit with you about this because this is a a, a point at which I think I could be misunderstood and and it could be offensive. I do have more than 24 upcoming appointments, my phone told me. Um, (laughs) That was unexpected. you're saying, Chad, are you saying we, we don't go to heaven when we die? No, that's not what I'm saying. That's not even what I'm getting at. What I want you and I to understand and what is so significant is that you and I, by and large, have lost, have lost the hope that is ushered into us by Jesus Christ in the promise of his return. We're no longer a people, by and large, that are longing for his coming. Instead, we have settled into a hope that is death, that that I can't wait till I die. And we'll say almost like lip service or, you know, unless Jesus comes back first, at the end of the day, 
I'm seeing more and more believers just kind of settle into an existence that's, well, I just, I, mean, I can't wait to die. Can I tell you where that's going to take us? It's going to take us down the path of euthanasia. It's going to take us down the path of assisted suicide. That's where that road leads. When our hope is an out rather than a coming, you and I will not suffer well. And the moment things are difficult in our life and we go through bodily pain, we'll say, just kill me. I know where I'm going. And we will take life into our hands. And we will reject what Jesus has just established here of God is the creator and the sustainer of life. He made us in his image. He made us male and female. And brothers and sisters, he determines the number of your days and mine. And that's difficult. I don't have cancer right now. I don't know what it's like to be facing a terminal illness, a terminal diagnosis. But what I do know is we are called to suffer with those who suffer. We are called to mourn with those who mourn. And so maybe the reason that there is this loss of a grip on our hope of the resurrection, of the coming of Jesus and his return is because we don't suffer well with one another. And we suffer alone and we lament alone. And there is just an isolation that when something's wrong with you, then we just try to put you away so that we don't have to see that. Let's not be that way. Let us suffer well together in this life, trusting God's word to the end of the age, trusting that what Jesus is talking about is our hope. You say, well, Chad, I come back to this. Like, are you saying we don't go to heaven when we die? What heaven is portrayed as is as a time where even the saints in heaven are saying, how long, Lord? How long until you avenge your name? How long? And all of the heaven seems to be anticipating in the book of Revelation, this coming of the Lord. I mean, so much so that the end of Revelation ends with John saying, come Lord Jesus. I mean, if it was just about getting there, John would have ended with, I'm coming Lord, I'm coming. But he says, come Lord, because he knows that's our hope. That's what we're longing for. That's what we need. That's when all things will be restored. That's when every tear will be wiped from our eyes. That's when there'll be a new heaven and a new earth. And so hear me on this one. This idea of the resurrection being so important to us that we must rekindle it or else we will go down a road of death. And that is not the road that he has ordained for us. So we need Jesus's authority to be, by, to be before us. We need it to be our hope that when Jesus said, I will return, I will come for you. I will not leave you as orphans, that that is what we are clinging to and what we are waiting for. And it goes on after this to this question. Then Jesus said to them, how can they say that Christ is the son of David? For David says in the book of Psalms, the Lord declared to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. David calls him Lord. How then can the Christ be his son? And again, he's quoting from the Old Testament, that which they would have had access to. And he's getting at something they should have been grappling with, that there's gonna be one greater than the authority than the King David. And that king is Jesus. And he's making this clear that even David in the Old Testament calls him Lord. And that's significant. In other words, we need the authority of Christ behind us to be that greater 
force. We spoke and sang about a song earlier about being able to speak to the mountains and all of these things. And if we're not careful, sometimes we can venture into the waters of, of, of this sort of a, I'll speak it into existence and name it and claim it kind of theology. We need to be mindful there that what we're doing is not falling into the trap of me being Lord, but of the Lord being behind me and hemming me in. You know, the image that comes to my mind is that scene from that old movie, Beethoven, where the, the little brother that's kind of wimpy, he kind of gets in this moment where he's gonna get in a fight, he, get off, he gets off the bus and, and he finally turns around to face these guys that are tormenting him and bullying him and all that. And he puts up his dukes and he's ready to fight. But what he doesn't see is that right behind him is this huge St. Bernard dog called Beethoven. And Beethoven is running his teeth and those bullies, they see Beethoven and they run. And the kid, he looks at his fist and he's like, wow, is that me? The answer is no. It was the one who was behind him. Brothers and sisters, that's why you can have confidence in this life and not fear. It's because Christ is behind you and he's bigger and stronger than you. But he's got your back. He's there with you. Now, please hear me. That's not a liberty to go get in any old fight you want to. Go do anything. Jesus is with me. But it is good to know that in those moments when we face something that is insurmountable, when we look at it and we say, I can't, there's one behind us who puts his hands on our shoulders and says, I can. I can. And then finally, the warning against the scribes. While all the people were listening, he said to his disciples, beware of the scribes who want to go around in long robes, who love greetings in the marketplaces, the best seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at banquets. They devour widows' houses and say long prayers just for show. These will receive a harsher judgment. You know, what I believe Jesus is communicating to us here is that just as we've gone through and we've said we need Jesus's authority over us. We need it under us as our foundation. We need Jesus's authority in us to govern our thoughts and our minds. We need his authority before us as our hope, the hope of the resurrection. We need Jesus's authority behind us in those moments of weakness. We need Jesus's authority on us. We need to wear it. And you say, well, what does that look like? Well, there's a message today that says that that means you're going to be all bowed up. You're going to face this world and you're going to, in the name of Jesus, and, and speak with this, this harshness of tone and condescension, maybe all those things. But if we're really honest, that, that kind of feels a little bit of like a little showiness. I want, to, I want to get up there and I want people to see me poking out my chest and sticking out my finger and speaking a message of authority. Do you know what we see Jesus wrapping himself in? A garment where he then bent down and he washed the feet of his disciples. And as he washed their feet, that had such an effect on his disciples. They never forgot it. They, they carried around that moment. They struggled with that moment in the moment. Lord, no. This is, this is inappropriate. Jesus says, unless I wash you, unless I cleanse you, you have no part of me. 
Brothers and sisters today, the authority of Jesus wrapped on us, covering us, is going to be manifest in humility, in a service. It's not going to be manifest like it was for the scribes in that day. How much I know. Look how, how much authority I have. Give me my seat of honor. Give me the mic. Jesus' authority is wrapped up in humility, and that's how it is to be today for you and me. Jesus' authority for us, behind us, above us, in us, below us, our foundation, our hope, our covering. But understand this, until you come to the place where you surrender your life to Jesus, you have no part of him. You do not know his covering. You do not know his protection. You do not have his hope. You do not have his thoughts in your mind, in his way, in your heart. You do not have him as a foundation in this life. Your life is built on sand. And the storms of this life will destroy you. But there is one who was king of kings and lord of lords who came down all the way down and said, come and follow me. If you're here today and you've never followed Jesus, please follow him. But for most of you in this room, you would say Jesus is Lord. Where in your life is his authority not on display? Is it in your mind? Is it in your heart? Is it in how you stand in this life? Is his authority before you as your hope? Is it behind you as your strength? Is his authority anything in your life? Maybe today you said, I, I thought Jesus was Lord, but his authority is not over me at all. Maybe today needs to be the day that you, who may have said, I was a Christian, truly come to know Christ. For the rest who say he is Christ, is there any part of your life where his authority is not on display? If he is Lord, he is Lord of all. And he is to be Lord of all in your life. Let me pray for us. God, I pray that in this moment, every man, every woman, boy and girl in this room will understand that Jesus has all authority, all authority. And he established that and that it was in the ground of your word. God, may we be reminded today just how much we need your word. We must be scripture fed. But Lord, even as we come to the scripture, if we do not know you as Lord, your word will mean nothing to us. It will just be information and not, and not what it is actually, the voice of God. The Lord today, would you speak to every heart? Would you convict every heart of sin where sin remains? And will you call those that you are calling today to follow you? Will you speak to their heart calling them to trust you, to admit their sin, to leave it behind following Jesus. I'm gonna invite everyone to stand in this room and we're gonna respond in song. But if you're here today and you wanna follow Jesus for the first time, I invite you to come that I might have a word of prayer with you and begin that journey together.